Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Happy guy, daddy ate a moldy pumpkin pie. Then he thought that he just couldn't die, so nearly laughed so hard and made him Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-359 of the Run Run Live podcast. Today, for me, is February 17, 2017. For you, who knows? Through the miracle of time travel and temporal displacement, you could be interfacing with my digital echoes thousands of years from now. I'm going to keep my intro brief because I've got a couple longer pieces in this episode and the interview's long and I'm horribly behind schedule. Yeah, when we last talked, my training was great and I was ramping up volume and intensity and of course that was a great way to curse myself, the kiss of death. The next day I ran easy with one of my buddies and that night I had a noticeably sore knee and I couldn't tell if it was from the running or from carrying some heavy crates up to the attic, so I took a few days off, took a few easy days. But by midweek, it was all good, it was gone, and it turned out to be probably tweak something in a non-running activity. And that just goes to show you how terribly fragile a marathon runner becomes in that run-up to a road marathon. And as a result, I missed a weekend long run. Then this past weekend, I got north of 17 and a half miles in with my buddies and my foot ended up being quite sore afterwards and it felt like I couldn't tell whether it was some sort of metatarsal thing but it feels like I aggravated my plantar fasciitis again and it's probably a combination of the high volume the cold weather my shoes are getting old but I had to take most of this week off as well so I dragged my bike trainer in from the porch and set it up in the living room in front of the TV and have been spinning away, catching up on some Netflix. And I'm going to try an easy 18 miles tomorrow morning with my buddies. One great development is that is coming full circle here. I'm doing long runs again with my old friend Frank, who you might remember from episode one if you've been around that long with me. And he went through that same hip resurfacing thing that we talked about a few episodes ago. And he's back on the roads with me training for Boston. So never say never. Never say die. We'll be doing this one already. Today I chat about trail running and plant eating with the delightful Pam, Trail Mama. And I think you'll like her. Thanks to my friends out there for responding to my cry for help to get some new interviewees. It worked, so Pam is one of those. In section one, I've got a long piece on how to survive the winter blues in your training and in your life. In section two, I've got a an interesting piece I'm going to test out on you, <laughs> guinea pigs, about sales and the sales process. And I'd appreciate feedback on this because I think it's missing something. So give me your feedback. And also send me fistfuls of dirty cash in duffel bags. Or just contribute to my Team Hoyt Fund. Yeah, you. I'm talking to you. Do the right thing. I know where you live. I'm sending Buddy over there to break your legs for a contribution. I've had to move three large helpings of winter storm snow this week, and my back hurts. 
But we also get the winter moon, which was wonderful at night. And the days are getting longer. Spring is coming. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Okay, 10 ways to work the winter stress out of your training. I'm looking out the window this morning at more snow. This is the third day this week we've gotten a storm. I realize that the unplanned, uncontrolled, and sometimes unwelcome arrival of a new batch of snow contributes to the existing closed-in feeling of this season of deep winter. The days are already short and dark and cold. Now you need to wrap yourself in layers of warm clothes to go out and shovel. That's another hour or two out of your already shortened day. That's more enforced wet and cold. The snowplows took out my mailbox this week. Now it sits comically broken and stuck into a four-foot snowbank at the end of my drive. Something else I'll have to fix. Dig out my tools and fiddle with that for an hour. Yes, these unplanned tasks float like large wet snowflakes into the schedule of your life, adding a bit more thick mental slush for you to wade through. And it's not a terrible crisis. It's not even hard. It just feels this time of year in the cold and the dark like you're trapped in a box and Mother Nature keeps making the box smaller. It's not the snow and its related tasks. It's the season, a season of fewer resources and compounding needs. It is the straw on this winter's camel back that can drive you into the blue side of a winter funk. And you're probably well into a training cycle for your spring races at this point, as I am. This means two to three hour runs and hard workouts that must be squeezed into short dark days. My beloved trails are piled full of deep-sucking snow and icy footprints. You could theoretically slog out a run on them, but it would not be the specific training run that your schedule calls for. There is no pace or heart rate correlation to slip-sliding around the forest. The roads aren't much better. The snow crowds in from the sides, and deep puddles of slush extend lagoon-like into the running lanes. Your shoes are wet, the footing is poor, the margin of life and death between you and the oncoming traffic is slim. Forget riding your bicycle. If you were to somehow manage not to die in the sand and ice or lose important extremities to frostbite, your bike would be ruined by road salt. Just when you need to step up your focus, intensity, and volume for your spring race, the conditions are at their worst. How do you break that oppressive environment and thrive and train? That's a bit of a grim picture, huh? It's not that bad. Winter can have its challenges, but as much a season to celebrate as to bitch about, and certainly shouldn't impact your training. This is another one of those things that you can talk yourself into if you try hard enough, but it's certainly not required. Here are 10 things... You can try to yank the steering wheel and pull yourself out of the winter blues. Number one, get outside. Part of the problem with these winter months is that we are forced inside. We sprint from a warm house to a warm car. We wake up in the dark. We go to sleep in the dark. This causes our minds to drop into bunker mode and our bodies to drop into hibernation mode. When you look at it, Most of the environmental challenges that drive us inside are not that daunting. Most of it is in our heads. Hiking in the snow or running in the cold is neither good nor bad. It's just different. Flip that switch in your head. Embrace the short days. Find a way to get outside every day. To feel the low winter sun on your face and breathe the dry, clean winter air. Snow is fun. Get some sun. Get some fresh air. Walk the dog. Get outside. Number two. When you're in an energy funk, use the timer to force yourself into flow. A simple trick I use in my office, especially in the morning when I'm struggling to get my engine going, is to use the 30-minute timer. 
and this is classically called the Pomodoro Technique by the self-help gang. You simply commit to work on something for 30 minutes without interruption. I just type 30-minute timer into Google and if I'm at my desk, and it will automatically launch a countdown timer. And this can be applied to your workouts as well. You don't have to commit to the monster workout you have on your calendar for today. Just commit to getting dressed, getting out, and getting started. 98% of the time, all you need to do is get started, and then you can do anything. Once you force yourself out into the flow, things will start to click. I've never regretted, well, almost never, forcing myself to do a workout. Number three, sleep more. Yeah, in these deep, dark, cold winter months, I find that I need more sleep. I don't know if it's the lack of sun or some deep mammalian hibernation response, but I need to sleep. And it's okay to sleep more. Sleep is a personal and a seasonal thing. You need to get as much as you need to feel like you during your operating hours. In reality, most of us have three to five really good hours of creativity and effectiveness in us every day anyhow. The rest of the day is mediocre execution at best, and I find my best time is in the morning for creative work and in the afternoons and evenings for working out. That's just me. You'll need to find what works for you. The point is that when you sleep less, you don't get more productive time. You get less productive time and more mediocre time. If your goal is to get quality work done, then skipping sleep is not a great solution. In these darker months, you might want to reschedule, restructure your life to get to bed a little earlier or sleep in a little later so you can be refreshed at work and get the full benefit from your training and your recovery. Number four, meditation. Meditation music and setting the tone for your work. These cold, dark winter days can lead you to feeling blue, unsettled, and unmotivated, and I'm purposely not using the D word here. A great way to counter that is to add some meditation into your day to proactively reset your brain. Now, I'm not saying you should spend your lunch break on a grass mat, cross-legged in your office, in the lotus position, burning incense and ringing brass bowls. That's probably against the fire ordinances anyhow. Just take a few minutes at those times when your energy or mental tonality dips to reset. Some people find prayer works for them. Some like guided meditation routines. And some just sit with sound or music in a contemplative state. Again, due to the wonders of the internet, all you have to do is type into YouTube or Google search meditation for XYZ. And you'll get hundreds of meditation practices for all different lengths of time that will guide you. And likewise, you can type in meditation music or sounds. And you'll get hours of recorded music to play in the background and promote that flow in your work. I particularly like the water sounds or the rainstorm sounds when I'm writing. It's very nice. Number five, morning routine, lunch routine, night routine. When you look at the opportunities and energy cycles in your day, you can strategically see where you can add routines to get better outcomes. And this is true year-round, but particularly true for the dark winter days. By routine, I mean habits or activities that positively impact your life, your career, your health. By adding a little structure to these and timing them for impact, you may find that you can counter the deleterious seasonal effects. You schedule in your diary time for it. It could be five minutes or an hour, whatever works for you. And these routines could include exercise, meditation, eating, napping, reading, writing, list building, visualization, affirmation, gratitude, or listening to music, or something. You'll find the most high-impact times to structure these routines are the morning, the night, and maybe even some other point during the day. In the morning, it's when you first get up, before you do anything else. In the evening, it's typically a routine and habit right before you go to sleep. During the day, you might find there is a point where a refresher routine can reset your head and restore your energy. Experiment with it. See what works for you. Number six, pay attention to your body. 
Watch out for injuries. One of the insidious things about this time of year is that the combination of seasonal stress, outside conditions, and ramping up for a spring race are the perfect storm for getting injured. You really have to listen to your body to make sure you catch early any tweaks. Slamming out hard workouts on cold, hard roads with ice patches might cause a sore knee or a sore foot. It's better to prevent injuries before they happen. If you do feel something starting, don't be stupid. Take the time to heal. Don't make a small injury large by pushing through the pain. Number seven, do less and forgive yourself. At the end of the day, in the winter, you may be sleeping more and spending more time maintaining your energy, and all that is an investment in your long-term health, but may leave you with fewer net hours in your day. It's okay to do less. It's more important to be healthy than to get stuff done. Prioritize your health, prioritize what really matters, and use those quality hours you do have effectively. It's okay. If there's a blizzard going on outside, you probably don't want to attempt that tempo run on the roads. Cut yourself some slack. Number eight, move some workouts indoors. Yeah, this time of year it becomes necessary to move some of your workouts indoors. Maybe it's the treadmill, maybe the exercise bike or the bike trainer. You can set these up in such a way to make them interesting. Find a series, something fun and compelling on your TV or laptop and binge watch while you're working out. Invite your friends over for a group ride. Think out of the box. Have fun with it. Number nine, do some fun workouts outside. Don't just hide inside. The winter months are cold and dark, but they're also a great time to be creative in your outside workouts. Try snowshoeing or cross-country skiing or just hiking. It's a great workout. If you've got kids, you can pull them around in a sled. You can run in the snow. It's just harder. Dress for it. You'll be fine. It'll make you stronger. My hardcore mountain biker friends, they ride all winter long. They have a blast in the snow. And those new fat tire bikes are designed just for these kind of conditions. One of my favorite times to run in the winter is at night. On a clear night with the dry air, the stars just pop right out and they light up the snow and it's magical. And number 10... Learn something new. Look for the nuances. For those of us who have been training for years, another cold run, another hard workout, another dark day can seem a bit repetitive, maybe non-compelling. The science shows that for people who are truly passionate about something, they look for the nuances. They look for the new things to learn within the old. How you deal with your training and living in the winter months is, at the end of the day, a question of mindset. It is what you make it to be. There are physical, mental, and environmental constraints, but part of the way you live your passion is discovering how to live with those constraints. Think out of the box. Find ways to live well and get things done that fit with you, your life, and your priorities. Don't let the winter of your discontent drag you down. Shake its hand. Work out a deal where everyone wins. And now for today's featured interview. Hello. And we're back. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing okay. It's not raining yeah. yet, so it's it's good so far. They are. Pam, yeah. a.k.a. Trail yeah. Mom. Um, trail Mama. For, uh, trail Mama. Trail Mama. Trail yeah. Mama. <laughs> so somebody, you know, somebody said you should talk to Pam. So I said, okay. So uh, you're, you're, you're a pro at this sort of thing. Give us the uh, the 200 words on who you are and what you do and why we're chatting. I just I figure I'm just your average mom, but maybe not. I guess I guess our friend that we have in common thinks I'm a little little more than average. Um, just a, a mom of two kids under age eight who works full time, but also trains for and runs ultras uh, on the side trails. I also follow a plant-based diet, which is probably second to running my other passion in my life. And I always try and encourage those or help anybody that needs help to kind of steer towards a, a plant-based diet. So, for example, this yeah. weekend I have a 50K on Saturday, and then on Sunday I'm going to an all-day plant-based conference. <laughs> that that okay. encapsulates my life right there. <laughs> are you Are you speaking? No, I'm not speaking. I just, I love to soak up all the information that I can. So it's just 
one that's being put on locally by some fairly big names in the plant-based world. And I got tickets. I grabbed my husband. I said, you're coming with me. And (laughs) that's our Sunday. So like a lot of people in our sort of extended internet community, right? It looks like you got into this by, you know, one day you sat down and decided to start writing a blog about your experience as a, as a trail runner and a, and a mom and a, uh, vegan, yeah. you know, plant-based, and all of a sudden you had a bunch of people following you and you have a little community going. How did that all happen? Well, yeah, I started running trails. I'd always done road races, and I started running trails. I joined a, a trail training. It was like one of the first training groups within our area, and it was just a bunch of great people, lots of personality there, and it kind of came out that we all had nicknames, and they nicknamed me Trail Mama, and then it sort of yeah. spurred from there where everybody I ran with, you had to earn your nickname to make it in my yeah. blog. And so that's where all these nicknames came from. And I'm originally from New Jersey, so all of my family's back there. And this was the blog was sort of a way to just keep everybody in the loop of what it was I was doing and all the adventures I was having and, you know, showcase the cute pictures of my kids in the process and keep them on the loop without having to send 500 emails or text messages. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, I started the blog, and then it kind of just grew from there. I mean, I wouldn't say I have a huge following. Most of it are friends and family, but I think I have some silent readers that that follow and read but don't comment much. (laughs) Yeah, it's a strange world we have where everybody's sort of voyeuristic on the uh, the Internet, and any of us can just sort of say, okay, I'm going to be Internet famous. And... uh, and, yeah. And do it ourselves. It's a, it's a, it's fascinating. It's really, it's really wonderful. I think. I read the blogs all the time, and then that's sort of what I'm like. You know what? I like to write. I like the computer. Let me try this. So, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's how I started doing it too. And but I also, um, you know, I heard, started the when the first podcast came out. I said, hey, I can do this, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it's but it's weird. It's weird because so my friend, my uh, kids will say to me, they'll say. Oh, you're internet famous, and I'll say, yeah, but that's different than being actually famous. It's way different, <laughs> right? <laughs> it so. depends, I guess, on who's who, who's following you. You could be famous to a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. So it's 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 interesting. It really is interesting, and I'm glad to be, you know, I'm grateful to be in this day and age when we can, you know, I can be talking to somebody who's a New Jersey transplant in California, you know, from my my dining room here yeah. in Littleton, Massachusetts. Um, and, uh, and we have something in common, you know, we, we love to, we have this passion for, for running. I love trail running too. I really like it because sort of earthy, crunchy California headset, but I feel like I get a lot of energy sort of not in the, yeah. you know, the karmic sense, but truly sort of spiritual energy from running in the woods more so than running no. on the road, right? It's, it's more transcendent than, than being on the roads. I 100% agree because my my girlfriends and I will joke that our trail running is kind of like our church. Like, we'll go out there and it it recharges us, it rejuvenates us. I mean, some of them are stay-at-home moms, others are moms that work full-time, and no matter what, we all have stress in our life. And so just there's something about going out into the woods where you have most of the time sunshine and fresh air it's just it's just different and the you know and I I do still run roads and I'll run the occasional marathon but the pounding that you get from the pavement just you know it, it makes your recovery a lot harder I guess and whereas for a, tr- a good trail run that you can run out there for three four hours you don't feel that the next day you just feel more or less rejuvenated from being out there and usually you're with people because you don't want to run on trails by yourself because that's not safe so you end up having a a good day with some friends just you know you feel like a kid again yeah it's a little adventure and you have some epiphanies sometimes when you'll be lost in thought and you'll look up and you'll see something you know Um, whether it's a full moon or a or a sunrise or you know you'd be steering a a deer face to face in the forest somewhere (laughs) you know you have these little epiphanies and it's really quite nice most of my, my blog posts unfold on the trail. Like, I'll get the idea, and then as I'm running, I'll just sort of think about running with that and what else I can add to it, or should I touch that topic, or what have you. And, yeah, most of the times it's, it stems from a good trail run. Yeah, I'm exactly the same way. The ideas and the formatting of those articles just spring right into your mind when you're on the trail. That's why I tell people, if you're, you know, if you're running all the time with headphones in, Listening to you know podcasts out. or audio books, you should not do that all the time. 
You know, you should no, you're should missing try out. just going out, yeah, because that blocks your mind from dropping into the creative zone. Totally. I, I, yeah, yeah I agree. you get it. You get it. So, <laughs> I so get you it. know the question. You know the question that all everybody asks, right? The number one question you get asked, besides the "what kind of shoes should I buy?" question, uh, is uh, <laughs> how do you how do you manage to schedule all this stuff into your life, right? Because that's what people ask me as well. So, how do you answer that? Uh, well, if you really want something, you will you will find the time to make it work and. I love running. I couldn't, you wouldn't want to see me without <laughs> being able to run at least on a daily basis. So, you know, I make sacrifices. I wake up early. I get up at 4.30 most mornings of the week, try and squeeze in a run when I can. Every so often I'll, I'll do it on my lunch hour at work. I'll try and sneak in a run um, then. And because my husband, he's a mountain biker and cyclist himself. And so he he's not a morning person, which Sometimes I find aggravating. Other times I'm thankful for because he then we'd be fighting for morning time if he was. So right. he tends to go for his rides and, and cycles, you know, at night after work, whereas I tend to do it in the morning. And, you know, both of our kids are fairly active. They swim and they're on basketball teams. So we kind of tag team and do practices and he'll bring his bike and then ride home from there or what have you, whatever we can do to kind of squeeze it all in. So right. I right. more or less just right. make it a priority. Yeah, do you guys sit down, like uh, you and he sit down on like a Sunday and say, okay, here's my training schedule for the week, here's yours, and no, you try that's... to find the slot? <laughs> that's called the um, the eye calendar, <laughs> more or less. I mean, I tell him, I say, hey, I'm signed up, so my goal race this year is 100K at the end of April, the Canyon's 100K, and you know, he knows it's a Western States qualifier and then I'm, I'm trying to, to qualify again. And so I'll, he'll give me from, you know, January to April and I get sort of the priority in determining which days we run. So I also coach right. or I assistant coach my daughter's basketball team on Saturdays. So he knows now where I normally run Saturdays, he rides Sundays. I'm now running Sundays. He can ride whenever he can find the time. And so I try to, even my runs on Saturday, I get up before the sun's even up to get out of the house to come back so that he has at least two to three hours to get a ride in at some point. But once my race is over, he starts a weekly mountain bike series that runs from, I think, May to like July sometime. And so then I know that, okay, I back off. That's his focus. If he gets to pick the ride or the days yep. that he wants yep. to do yep. his workouts. And so we kind of do it yep. that way. We Luckily, our schedules don't overlap too much. He hasn't jumped into the racing all year round realm, whereas I tend to do two or three key races a year. And that's I hadn't heard that before. So you guys are sort of trading it off by season, which is interesting. Kind of, yeah. Um, yeah, but that's good because that lets one of you sort of get it out of your system and then recover while the other one's getting it out of their system. So that's that's good. It, Exactly. But we both need to move on a daily basis, whether it's like a walk at lunchtime or just something to get outside. So, you know, if one of us didn't get that, you know, it's like, okay, I'll take care of dinner or I'll do the bath. You just go outside and go for a run around the block, whatever you need to do to just (laughs) get some kind of movement in. Yeah. And sometimes you just don't get stuff done, right? Stuff just doesn't get done, right? There's stuff on your list that you just don't get to and you got to be okay with cutting yourself some slack. Absolutely. Right. So the laundry piles up or we have the same meal three days in a row. <laughs> you know, right. were you always a, a runner or did you just get into it later in life or how did you get into that? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, how do you get to a, a trail ultra? <laughs> well, in high school and all, you know, all my younger years, I was a three sport athlete. So soccer, basketball, softball all year round, sometimes two right. of those sports at the same time. Then college, I went to school in Connecticut, and um, I decided I just wanted a break from all sports. I just was so overwhelmed with just constant yeah, practices yeah, and no. double sessions, and I just I left it. I completely left yeah, it. Yeah, I get it. Got completely get unhealthy it. <laughs> in college, and then I ended up with we had there were seven of us living together at one point. Well, my freshman year, there was four of us in a tiny little box of a room, and I just was I couldn't take a lot of the drama or just, you know, college life. And so I just started running just to get out of my room, 
more or less. Mm-hmm. And then lo and behold, you drop five pounds and you think, wow, the, some of my freshman 15 is going away. This is great. Yeah, <laughs> so then it just yeah. kind of sparked from there. I just kept running. And then I moved to California right out of college. And I thought, holy cow, everybody runs in California. There's a yeah, race yeah. every single weekend. <laughs> yeah, you dropped yourself into the healthy lifestyle mecca. Yeah, for sure. And then, then I discovered Western States and trails and I live 30 minutes from Auburn which is the endurance capital of the world and so I'm I'm truly blessed to live where I live to be able to do all the things that I do I never take that for granted but and yeah I just I just was obsessed with western states and the story behind it that I got into trail running and went started with like a I think it was a 10 miler and then I went to a 50k and a 50 miler and then 100k last year and been on that route ever since and you're trying you're shooting for western states yeah, I, I threw my name in last year. I got a qualifier at a uh, Quicksilver 100K, but didn't didn't get called. Everyone around me got called at the lottery, <laughs> but mm. me. I think I think but, my uh, buddy my buddy Eric who does Leadville. I think he got into Western States. So he might have. Are you, you know gonna, what? Are you going to go down and crew? Oh, for sure. I would. I'm always out there, at least somewhere. Last year, I brought my my five year old to the finish line. And at first, she was bored out of her mind, and then she just she got into it. She was high fiving all the runners as they were coming in. So, it's huge here, and I have yeah. such respect for that race. And and my belief is yeah. that you know it'll happen when the time's right. My kids are still little, so to put that yeah. much time and effort into training, it may not be the right time for me right now. So it'll happen when it happens, and if it takes me every year of just trying to get in, so be it. Yeah, you got plenty of runway, and you know the good thing about ultra running is that it doesn't really. There's no real age penalty, you know. You don't get that same age penalty you do for like trying to run a a two eleven marathon, right? It's all about pace and and uh, aerobic fitness. And some of the strongest runners I know are in their forties and fifties or beyond. It's amazing how, from what I've seen, how much stronger and and more just better trail runners people are as they've gotten older it's crazy right. i mean my age bracket alone right. i just turned 40 in december and it's it's i'm scared for all the people in my age bracket there's there's really really hardcore runners oh yeah 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 so, yeah. so you're you're about 10 years older uh younger than me so there's no your your generation is the peak of the women who were in sports as as children right yep so you're going to have that same thing because that happens to me in my age group. You go, oh, I'm moving up in age group. It's going to get easier. No, it's not. No. Right? That just means there's <laughs> more people my age with time on their hands that they can train for marathons. Uh, so exactly. it, it never happens. You never age into an easier age group because everybody's doing it. So in, where you live is also sort of one of the big uh, plant-based areas of the world as well. It It is. I mean, I, I would say finding something to eat here is definitely easier than when I go home to New Jersey to visit my family in terms of just finding <laughs> fresh fruits and veggies. Yeah. Well, you but, get pizza. Um, but yes. Oh, yeah. My my hometown, there's a pizza place literally with like a 20-foot walk across the street from my house and a Dunkin' Donuts exactly. around the corner. Yeah. Yep. So it's easier here, but I wouldn't say it's a huge, I mean, if they, if it is, not a lot of people talk about it because I still yeah. get the looks. And my husband's plant-based for the last four years now, and he still gets the question every day. But but how do you get your protein <laughs> every right. single day? Yeah, you know. Yeah, one of my favorite non-meat-based meals right now is French fries. So I make them myself. So you just okay. cut up a potato with a little bit of olive oil, you know, some cumin and some garlic powder and some salt, and you bake those. That's really good. I love that. And and my point is, people hear vegan or plant-based, and they think, oh, my God, I have to eat cabbage and brown rice for every meal for the rest of my life. That's, you know, there's so much more to it. I mean, I tell people, don't fear the potato. The potato is not what's going to make you fat. It's it's the sour cream and the cheese and all the stuff that you pile on top of it. Yeah, that for sure. But a potato itself, no, it's a full of nutrients and, and it's filling, it's satiating. It's one of those foods that will actually make you feel full. Like I can't eat a salad and feel full. I don't know how people do it. If people saw yeah. my lunch, they'd be shocked at how much I actually eat. <laughs> I interrupted you. You said you got a better recipe for French fries for a us? Better, yes. So so take your potatoes. I usually do this with Yukon Gold because my kids love those more than any other potato. And you cook them 
so you could cook them all in the oven. I don't know if you, I use an instant pot. I have a pressure cooker, so I could make them all like a whole bag at once. But you bake them in the oven if you don't have that. And then you store them in the fridge when they're done cooking and cooled or whatever. You keep them in the fridge. So this you have to do this like a day in advance. Then you take those cooled potatoes and you cut them up into like wedges, basically kind of like steak fry size. Right. Yep. Season exactly. them with, with your salt, your cumin, your garlic powder. And then you broil them in the oven for like... 12 minutes or so just because they're already cooked if you boil them then they'll be crispy on the outside and soft on the inside so you save yourself a ton of calories and fat by removing the oil completely you're a distance person you're Mm -hmm. out there for hours and hours what's what kind of advantage have you seen from being plant-based versus you know versus a traditional kind of fuel that those kind of runners would use i would say my recovery time my recovery time is pretty, I can bounce back from races a lot faster than a lot of people. And I finish them with loads of energy. And that doesn't mean that I didn't give 110% out there. I just, I, you know, I generally finish a race and my husband's done having the kids for seven hours straight and he hands them over and is like, okay, your, your turn, whether you ran or not, <laughs> it's your turn to be on parenting duty. But I just, I feel like my recovery is faster. I feel like my digestion tends to be better. I have enough energy. My sleep is always better. Yeah, what I found is when I eat clean, you know, no dairy, no meat, or, you know, very little, is uh, I tend to get less tendonitis. I tend to get less inflammatory damages. Absolutely. Those things are highly inflammatory in the body, especially dairy. But so, yeah, I mean, that, that all can go to just recovery and training your your body's able to repair itself better because it doesn't it's not fighting these other acidic things within your system you know a lot of people get these stress fractures from running and then they go and they have dairy but little do they know that that dairy is causing more harm than good because it's so acidic that your body's smart and it's pulling the calcium from your bones to fight the acidity in the dairy that you're thinking is helping give you more calcium and then you end up with more stress fractures it's just it's mind-blowing let me ask you a hard question here, um, which is, you know, okay. what do you think your 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 mission or your vision or your purpose is with your with all the stuff that you're doing? Does it all come together? Is there a single string you can pull at the top someplace where you'd say, this is what I'm trying to do in this world? You know, that's a good question. I mean, I always say that this is my passion and I would love to just, you know, I love where I work, but I would love to quit my job and follow my passion and be one of those people that that's. I'm doing what I love every day, but the reality of it is I have two kids that I have to get through college at some point and there's bills to pay and mortgages and all of that. So I I don't necessarily think I could make a living doing the things that I would love to do, which would basically be just helping people eat a more plant-based, well-rounded whole foods diet. And so I think I kind of just try and incorporate a little bit of that, but I know it turns a lot of people off when you tell them no meat, no dairy, no this, no that, you know, people get really offended when you criticize their food. It's, yeah. it's, I mean, it's, it's mind blowing sometimes at how upset people get when I say something. And so, you know, that's why I kind of buffer my blog with a little bit of running, a little bit of plant-based stuff. I've taken some cooking courses in in the past. And so I add a little bit of cooking flair to that when I can, but mostly I just want people to kind of stop and look at what it is they're putting in their mouth. Like today, for example, I, I put out a post today on my blog about heart disease. Today's the anniversary of my mom's death. She was 47. She died of a massive heart attack without any warning. And so I wrote this post today just saying, you know, as much as if I knew now or if I knew then what I know now, she might still be here. But then would I be the way I am now? if she hadn't passed because something happened when she passed that clicked in my brain that made me focus on the foods that I was eating and sort of transformed my way of thinking about food and the body. And so Mm. I just, I want people to be aware of, you know, yeah, if you're tired and you're getting out of breath or you're having, you know, uh, chest pains or you're just, you just can't get out of bed in the morning in the mornings because you're so tired. Stop and look at what you're putting in your mouth before. Right. You're blaming but other it's things. Tough. It's tough. It's like it's like trying to break an addiction for these folks. It is. It's emotional. It's cultural, and it's physical, right? A lot of this Absolutely. stuff is very addictive. So what's the what's the easy way? How do you get people? How do you ease people into into that sort of thing? 
Well, you know what? Cause, there's cause a lot of research them doesn't out work, there. right? Information oh, no. never yeah, works on these things, right? They, they look at me and they're like, well, you're thin because you run so far. And I said, no, that's not the case at all. But there, yeah, it's finding the resources. So, like, I follow Dr. Esselstyn. He's a, the author of Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease. And the whole Esselstyn family, they have the whole Engine 2 line. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. They've started a whole program on Facebook. It's a private Facebook group, but you just have to email the Engine 2 people and they invite you. And there's 11,000 members now. This started January 1, and there's 11,000 people now who are all curious about living a plant-based whole food lifestyle. And so they have all, and these are meat and potato people living up in northern Idaho who know no other way of eating, who are curious, who've had life-threatening issues or, you know, serious markers in their life that are making them make this change. And so they've joined this group, and I hear over and over and over again on this page about how nice it is to have this support. Even though they don't know any of these people face-to-face, they just know the virtual people, right, the virtual group, they have this support system, and it's helping them make wiser choices throughout the day. So I think a lot of people go at this, and they're doing it alone. Their family probably isn't supportive. You know, it's an uphill battle. And I think if you have someone, like I want to be that someone for everyone. I want to show them that it's okay, that you know what, you can go to that work meeting and bring your own salad and it's okay or your own lunch from from home. I think that applies to so many things in your life where you think culturally you shouldn't do something because you think people will freak out. And you know what, they won't. You yeah. know, I did yeah. the same thing with your with your running, right? If I come in from lunch and I'm, you know, hey, I'm going to go run for an hour, nobody's yep. going to freak out. <laughs> and if they do, screw them, no. right? They're in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What's, you know, big deal. <laughs> All right. I no. got to move you towards the exit here. Okay. What uh well, this has been great. What else have you what else have you learned from all this in the last few years? What are the top 3 things you could leave people with? To leave them with something that food is fuel. You wouldn't put crappy gas in your car and expect it to go really, really far. So why are you going to put crappy food in your body and expect it to do all these amazing things that your body can do? The body's smart. It takes what it needs and does what it's supposed to do. And if you jam it with all this junk and added stuff, then it's it's not going to work properly. And the third thing, get outside. You You have to get outside. Vitamin D comes from the sun. You need that to live. And, you know, it, it just changes your mood if you can just get outside, whether it's a walk. What, park your car far away. I mean, you hear that all the time. Park farther from the store so you can walk to it. There's something to that, just breathing fresh air. I used to take my kids outside when they were babies, and they would sleep great at night because they yeah. had that, you know, chunk of fresh air. Yeah. No, I get it. All right. Well, I'll let you go. Okay. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Talk to you And uh, maybe soon. you'll come out and do a, a trail run out here sometime? Yeah, I love it out there. I, I do. Uh, <laughs> and I do think I'll probably be spending some more time in Silicon Valley in the near future. So maybe uh, maybe I'll get out into the hinterlands. There you go. Some great trails in Marin. Yeah, exactly. Maybe I'll run in Dean Carnassus. There you All go. Right? <laughs> All right. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Pam. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Why sales is such a mystery. Sales and selling, it's black magic. Of all the occupations, sales and selling are seen by some as magic and by others as despicable. In the popular business mythos, sales is some sort of black magic. Most people would rather do any other occupation than sales. Nothing terrifies the average professional like the thought of having to make your next paycheck by actively selling a product or service to other people or companies. Why? Well, like most things people are afraid of, or hate, or even glorify, it stems from a lack of knowledge. Until you've been tasked with selling a product or service as a professional, you can't understand what sales is all about. I'm sure some executive has told you at some point in time that we are all in sales. Somebody has to sell the products that our company produces, right? Otherwise, there are no customers. Without customers, there is no revenue and no company. It stands to reason. 
It stands to reason that sales is a critical element to the health of the firm. That's the situation. You've got a scary, mystical profession that you don't really understand and no one wants to do. That just so happens to provide the lifeblood of the company. That, that is a crazy dynamic. So how do you get around this dynamic? By understanding the process of sales and selling. By understanding the science behind the art. Like Anything else, once you understand, once you remove the mystery, you remove the magical thinking and the fear. Sales is not magic. Sales is a process like any other process. Once you understand it, it will cease to scare you, and you can harness the power of a good sales process. I could never do what you do. That's what I hear when I talk about some of the sales situations I've been in, walking into a conference room in a strange company full of scowling executives and walking out with their trust, appreciation, maybe even an order. Seems like some sort of superhero magic. But it's not magic. It's a result of many other concerted actions by the entire company. Somebody designed and built a beautiful product. Someone deployed other successful customers for the case studies. Someone built out beautiful slides and compelling stories to be told. In the context of the entire process of many interrelated steps and actions over a course of weeks and months and years, my part was easy. All I had to do was shave and put on a suit and show up on time and tell a good story. There's a skill to that, but it's not magic. It's understanding and preparation. The value exchange of enterprise business-to-business sales the category of sales that we are talking about here is enterprise sales or business-to-business sales. This is the type of sale you are selling to companies, not end consumers. This is not retail sales where the product is on a shelf in a store or on a virtual shelf on a website waiting to catch the eye of a wandering consumer. Enterprise sales is one company engaging in value exchange with another. Value exchange is the core of enterprise sales. Companies buy products that provide value. I trade you money for the value your product provides my company. That's how it's done. Enterprise sales enables that value exchange. Enterprise sales is the critical process of bridging the gap between your wonderful product and the customers who can benefit from having it. Sales is all the activities, all the touch points between your organization and the customer's organization that culminate in that value exchange. The process of sales is not magic. It's a process like any other process. It's a business science like any other. Enterprise sales answers the question, what is the most effective way to facilitate value exchange with the customers? Companies consistently buy value. One of the main misconceptions about sales is that somehow the sales professional can convince customers to buy the product. Unless you're the mafia, you can't make people buy. If you think you can hire magical salespeople to make the customers buy, you're going to be disappointed. The good news is that all companies are buying value. The sales professional facilitates the path to understanding and buying that value. They help customers buy value. The customer needs your product. The salesperson manages the process to get them that value. But Chris, you say, if my product provides value, why am I having trouble selling it? Why aren't my prospects lining up to buy it? Well, just providing value doesn't mean companies will line up with money orders in their hands. You must get their attention. Explain the value. Prove the value. Show more value than the other 10 things they have in the evaluation stack. And for a competitive product, explain how your product has more value than the other products in this space. That's what the sales process is. That's what sales professionals do. A big misunderstanding of the sales process is that it is a sales process at all. It's a buying process that your customers must work through. They buy stuff every day. They want that value. But they have a process and a criteria. They have budgets. They have time frames and resource constraints. The value is only one aspect of the equation for the buyer. They will look at the cost and the risk. What is it going to take? 
to get from the potential value to the actual value. If you can't succinctly move through the buyer's process as well as your own value process, you won't see a sale. This sales challenge is compounded in a startup. Most established companies have at least minimally figured sales out. They have a rigorous sales systems in place staffed by competent professionals that facilitate the acquisition of new customers, new business. Sales is a repeatable process with known steps. They have a history and data to tune and improve the process. Not everyone in the company understands the process, but enough do to keep the lights on. Going concerns have a critical mass in sales. Startups do not have critical mass, and they may not have anyone with a clue how to create, manage, and execute an enterprise sales process. The mismatch in sales process understanding is compounded in young technology startups. The founders may be brilliant technologists that have created brilliant, one-of-a-kind, high-value products, but they struggle to close the gap between their product and the paying customer. The founders are passionate and smart, but they are usually engineers and maybe introverts. Don't get me wrong, engineers, once they understand the process, make really good salespeople. But they believe that the product will sell itself, and all they have to do is create the product and get it in front of people. They focus all their energy on the product and miss the value exchange and the buyer's process. Unfortunately, the history of business is littered with the corpses of brilliant products that didn't sell and mediocre products that grew to dominate the market. And the difference is being able to create, manage, and execute an enterprise sales process, being able to manage that value exchange. Startups have a product and an idea of who needs it, but they're starting from scratch. What industries and segments does the product provide value to? Which companies within those segments? What roles within those customers? What should the pricing be? How long is the sales cycle going to be? How do we get their attention? How do we get those first sales and get them quickly? And once you know some of these important things, then you can set up the sales process. How do we get the attention of our target buyer? How do we approach them? How do we get them excited? How do we explain the value exchange in such a way that the buyer internalizes it and owns it? What are the steps in this process? What are we going to measure? What do we track? What systems do we need? How do we qualify prospects? How do we provide proof? How do we remove the risk? How do we differentiate from the competition and other projects that want the same funding? These are just a few of the questions the startup must answer to create a sales process, otherwise you'll be blundering around poisoning the well. Lay on top of this the urgency of a new company, the need to get to a revenue event quickly, and you tend to hurry up and screw up. What are the alternatives? What do you do when you don't know how to set up an effective sales process? What are your choices? Well, you can figure it out yourself. You could hire a magical sales pro, or you can get a coach. If you want to bake your own, why not try to figure it out yourself? You're smart. You came up with an idea, got funding, built a product. You already know how to pitch. How hard could it be to figure out sales? The pros of figuring it out yourself as a startup, you will gain a valuable skill set. You will get firsthand experience with how your product enters into value exchange with the target market. You, as a founder, will be very effective in pitching the product. You won't have to deal with scary salespeople or share power. And the cons of the bake-your-own approach include you won't get a predictable process, you tie the founder time up in the direct sales process, you won't end up with a repeatable process, you'll talk about the product way too much and not the value exchange, you'll leave money on the table, and your time to revenue will be much longer. So why don't we go with option number two, hiring a magical sales pro? Why not go buy the best sales pro you can find and then just turn them loose? Now, the theory behind this move is that since your product is so cool and innovative, you just need someone to get in front of customers. The magical thinking is that there are these salespeople out there who have a list of 100 customers in their back pockets who are just waiting to buy. 
the magical sales pro has this magic Rolodex that somehow immediately translates to revenue. Now, the pros to this approach in theory are you get immediate sales and revenue from these captive customers. The sales pro causes that hockey stick acquisition of new paying customers. And at some future date, while you're counting all the money, you can get back to building a sales process around this pro. But the cons of this approach are magical sales pros like unicorns don't really exist. You may get a couple quick deals, but since you're skipping steps, they may end up being troubled accounts. These high-powered sales pros may be like the proverbial bull in the china shop and can leave a trail of destruction that you and your brand will have to recover from. And you abdicate control, visibility, and management of the sales process to this individual. So I think a good compromise is to get a coach. Hire out the sales pro or to an organization that can mentor you. Help you get business while you're coming up to speed. And this is typically a two-pronged approach where you're building out the process and the team while also executing on the short-term business. And the pros of this approach is that transfer of knowledge to the founder team, to the company through the process, the creation of a predictable, scalable, and repeatable process, and it helps your credibility and your ability to forecast revenue to your investors, and you're not abdicating control or ownership of the process. The cons are it takes maturity to manage the urgency while managing the creation of a sales process, and it's not a quick fix. Summary. Sales is not a magical, unknowable process. Sales is just another business process to understand and manage. Enterprise sales is managing the value exchange between two companies. Companies buy value, and the sales process facilitates that buying process. Sales is a much riskier proposition in a startup. There is urgency to bring in quick revenue. The founders may not have a good understanding of sales as a business process. This combination of urgency and lack of understanding causes magical thinking that can lead them to make poor decisions when spinning up an initial sales process. Getting a good coach can help not only meet the short-term revenue goals, but set up a predictable process for ongoing success. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Yes, my friends, this particular trail is a dead end that you have followed, an impassable swamp of ideas that you cannot afford, but you have reached the end of the Run Run Live podcast episode, episode 4-359. I'm still training away, and a couple of weeks of downtime isn't going to affect me either way. The lesson for you, though, is, as I said in that first piece, pay attention and get in front of injuries early in your cycle before they take you out. I know from my experience, there's never an immediate chronic injury. Well, not never, but not usually. It's always something that would have healed in a couple weeks or days if I had just been smart about it. And we're about a month and a half, two months out from Boston, and that gives me plenty of time to tune my racing. I'm already riding a good fitness base, so I'm not worried about it. I can lose those last 10 pounds in two weeks if I have to. I've got a lot going on. I'm short on time today, and that's okay. That's why we set deadlines. Deadlines and urgency are enabling. As a matter of fact, urgency is one of the preconditions for entering a flow state. Translation, you do some of your best work when you don't have any other choice and you don't have time to think about it. I'm reading a great book right now that I'll write more about in the future. It's called Grit by Angela Duckworth. And it talks a lot about how being successful is more related to sustained effort than intelligence or skill. I love this concept, and I can see it in my running, in my career, in my life, and other people's careers. It also says that when you find something that you're passionate about, that becomes your obsession and purpose, it isn't like being struck by lightning. Most people don't end up doing what they thought they would. The path to success and passion and self-realization is a crooked one. If you were to stumble across my personal journals, steal them out of my desk drawer, you'd find them full of laments that I don't know what I want to do with my life. That first phase of finding that passion is interest or discovery. 
before people lock into that thing they love. So don't be afraid to try new things and to shop around in your interest. It's an incremental process, and it's a crooked road that, frankly, never ends. And please, enjoy the journey, and I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed. So hard it made him cry. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. Who's texting me? Stop texting me. Texting, texting. See, I told you not to text me. Damn it.